Welcome to Season 2 of Song Chronicles. My guest today is Linda Edel Howard. Put simply, Linda gets songwriters the money they are owed. For over 30 years, Linda has operated in Nashville as an attorney who advocates for artists, particularly in the rather esoteric areas of copyright and royalty law. She's highly regarded and a sought-after pro in her field. When I met Linda and listened to her describe the work she does, I had to interview her so everybody can get a chance to better understand songwriters' legal rights. Now a partner at Nashville's prestigious Adams & Reese law firm, Linda remains dedicated to helping musicians. This work is a gift, she says. It actually changes people's lives. Most musicians know songs are copyrighted, published, and earn royalties, but often don't know how the system operates. When it comes to who owns a song, she explains, forever doesn't mean forever. Linda's love for music and musicians started when she was a teenage rock photographer, but she ended up going to law school on the motivation that her legal expertise could help musicians more than a photograph. After graduating, the New Jersey native would hold Sunday night contract clinics at Asbury Park's legendary Stone Pony Club for musicians, charging them only a pizza slice and a beer. Her successful career has included working for the estates of Elvis Presley and George Gershwin, as well as with Polygram Music Publishing Group. Please enjoy my conversation with Linda Edel Howard. We met recently. Linda is a lawyer who is incredibly knowledgeable about copyrights, all things having to do with what happens behind the scenes with songs and publishing and the income stream, things that most songwriters know very little about, surprisingly. And it's a great thing to be able to talk to songwriters and find out the inspiration behind the song. And, you know, this podcast likes to find out the story behind the song. But truly, there is a whole other story behind the song that we rarely ever think about. And I was so fascinated talking to Linda. I thought everybody should have this information. And she was kind enough to come over and talk to us today. And I am really excited to hear from her. Hi, Linda. Hey, Louise. Thanks for having me. Thank you for coming. This is so great. You want to tell a little bit about what you do? Well, I am a rock photographer turned entertainment lawyer. Been working in the world of entertainment and copyright for 35 years between New York and Nashville. And I pretty much dedicate myself to advocate on behalf of the creative community in working to help them protect their rights and negotiate deals for them and just create a good business model for them because they're all small businesses, every one of these artists and songwriters. Yeah, that tends to be the thing. We are small businesses, although some of your artists are pretty big, successful artists. Well, you're a solo practitioner, but you yourself are the business. Right. And it takes a lot of energy to write songs, produce songs, promote songs, go on tour, make records. And songwriters and musicians are so used to enjoying the process of self-expression and creativity that forms are the last thing that they want to look at. True that. The contracts and and copyrights. Yes. 
So, I mean, I have a million questions for you. One of them, well, first of all, I know that what you focus on recently is termination, people who have written songs that are in the DNA of the culture, who may be living in a trailer and have no idea how to get their money. And nobody can find them, and there is money there, and a lot of songwriters just assume it's all gone and it's not there. So can you tell us a little bit about that and how in that situation, or if we know someone in that situation, what we would tell them of how to go find out where their money is? Well, for collecting royalties on... Uh, songs that you've written, then there's the uh, performing rights organizations you can call and and get your money from them. But if you're talking about termination work in particular, mm-hmm. we can go to to that topic. So if you've created a, a piece of work and you've transferred it to somebody, the words in perpetuity, I'm allergic to, just like the word recoupable. So in perpetuity is supposed to mean forever. And if you've transferred your song or your creative work to somebody else, supposedly forever, in my world, forever doesn't mean forever. And you're going to be able to capitalize on getting that asset back and making even more money on it and finding more money for the use of that work in the future. So why is in perpetuity suddenly not in perpetuity? Well, because our wonderful Congress decided that songwriters and other creative people were creating pieces of work and transferring them before the actual value was determined. For instance, a songwriter signing a publishing company for three years is basically pre-selling the output of their services as a songwriter. Mm. You don't know what those songs are worth when you've sold them. So the law has given a second bite at the apple. So you've, you've signed away your creative works, whether you're a book author or a songwriter or a photographer. And at some point down the road, even though you've given it away forever in perpetuity, you get the right to recapture it or revert it or reclaim it, whatever word you want to use, and own it. And those time periods and those mechanisms and formulas are extremely esoteric. And I've been working on this type of work now for over 30 years. Truly amazing. It's almost like a secret. It is a secret. It's a secret that the people that are owning your property don't want you to know about because then you're you're pulling works out of their catalog and out of their companies. But as time's going by, more and more lawyers and managers and songwriter advocacy programs are educating the artistic population of this particular magic rule. And so it's very confusing, but I may have mentioned to you in the past, I did have somebody who just literally called me up one time and said, I, somebody told me that there's a lawyer down in Nashville who can work some magic and get a song back for me that I sold in the 1940s. You know, I gave the copyright to a publisher and I gave my songwriter royalties to my dentist. And is there a way that I can 
get this back, they actually almost don't believe it, that it's possibly be true, because it just seems so bizarre. Well, there's also a lot of experience of years of suffering from feeling like, oh, I made the wrong deal and I screwed myself. You know, like if you live with that for decades and then someone says, guess what? You can get this back. It probably is hard to assimilate at first. It is. It's, it's a gift. And doing this type of work on a really high-level analysis, it, it actually changes people's lives. It can change their family. It can change financially. Working through this with a lot of the elderly population of our artistic community, there's a certain sense of peace that they've been given that their families could be taken care of because we're talking about 56 years and a 35-year in advance kind of situation where you can do something and you've got to wait 56 years and you've got to wait 35 years, that's, that's generations. And so knowing about this and then knowing that the children or the grandchildren and are going to be taken care of and they have this opportunity to own some of dad's, mom's, grandpa, grandma's works down the line, or even just refinance it now that the value is actually known. That's so valuable. And it's just amazing that you're here because someone might be hearing this that has no idea that this is possible. And it's very exciting. It's got to be a wonderful shock. Yes. When forever is not forever. It's quite fulfilling Mm -hmm. And I've really dedicated myself to educating other people, lawyers, and anyone that wants to understand how to help their clients or their family do this. And um, that's just in my world of education and advocacy to do this for the community because it's just very near and dear to my heart. That's beautiful. So just a little publishing 101. You said performing rights organizations. Uh, you'd be surprised how many new songwriters don't really know the difference between a performing rights organization and a publisher. If you ask somebody who their PRO is, they might say, oh, it's uh, Warner Chapel," And you have to explain that, no, Warner Chapel is your publisher. And there's a lot of different areas of publishing, mechanicals, performance rights, neighboring rights. I mean, I've been in the business a long time and I still can't get my head around all of it. And then there's masters and sound exchange. How does this apply to ownership of masters, the in perpetuity? Well, I wish it to apply to master recordings because they are a creative work. They are a copyrighted work as long as they, and they're subject to federal copyright protection mm-hmm. after February 15th, if they were created after February 15th, 1972. So they're subject to federal copyright protection and any copyrighted work is open to this forever is not forever magic right. rule. So master recordings, sound recordings should be a part of the recapture and termination work. Um, the, the record labels are not recognizing it. There's several, two huge class action lawsuits pending right now that will give us some good law on it. And um, there is an exception to the termination right when forever is forever, and that's this concept of work for hire. Mm -hmm. And work for hire is basically when you're almost an employee or you're commissioned to do a particular kind of work for a company like a record label or a films company. And you're, you're not really independently creating the, the copyrighted work. 
Um, and that's an exception to be able to exercise this recapture right. So the record labels are claiming this exception, for instance, if it were like work for hire. And then there also is confusion as to who actually is the author. And that's the word that's used, the author of a master recording. Mm-hmm. So master recordings, we are filing for ma- the recapture and, and of master recordings and terminating the grant uh, to the record labels. There's, there's really no law on it. And we don't exactly know who's the, the author. Is it the featured artist, the background singers, the background musicians, the engineer, the master engineer, the mixing engineer, the producer, or all of the above? And this esoteric law with its esoteric components drills down to you actually have to know this stuff. You you have to identify this. And there's this concept of majorities and super majorities that need to file in order to recapture. Well, you know what, Louise, you write a song. I know who the author is. But if everybody in this room today goes in the studio and creates a recording, who's the author? Unless everybody did the job and signed a work for hire or it was assumed it was a work for hire. And that's that. There was no claim to the recording. Sound recordings are not one of the nine enumerated categories that qualify as work for hire, interestingly enough, unless it was a sound recording that was made for an audiovisual work for a movie or a video or television or something, or a game. So in my opinion, it's really, really hard to fall into the concept of work for hire in the world of recording masters. Interesting. And what happens when there's no contracts? Nobody has signed anything. Yeah, I call that terminating a handshake. Yeah? (laughs) (laughs) The problem is, is that the law says you cannot transfer a copyright without a writing. And you have to have a written, signed document in order to get the copyright out of the author's ownership over to a third party songwriter, to a music publisher, for instance. Mm -hmm. And if you don't have that, will the law assume or create in the world of virtual reality, will they create the concept of a writing? Because 56 years have gone by or 50 years have gone by assuming that there was a transfer. We don't know. Mm -hmm. By and large, you can't terminate a a handshake. So we try to find something that was the grant in order to try to terminate it. Because you're not, people talk about terminating copyrights. You're actually not terminating a copyright because we don't want to terminate copyrights. We want them to last for the duration of of copyright protection, at least in in, in the United States and around the world. But we're terminating the grant, the transfer, the assignment from Mm -hmm. the creator to the owner, Mm -hmm. the buyer. I got it. So, yeah, it's really hard to terminate a handshake, but I do it all the time. Okay. (laughs) So somebody's writing a song. Let's say three brilliant people walk into a room. They don't know a lot about publishing, but they write this killer song, they go in the studio, they record it, a record label puts out a single, and it explodes and turns into a hit song. What do they need to know, or what should they have needed to know? At what point are they going to go, okay, what do I have to follow up on now? Where is money going, and how do I pay attention to it and get paid? What do they need to know? We call that fixing it in the mix. Once, uh, once it's already 
going yeah. out. It's much less expensive and easier to do all of that before you write your song. And before it has value. Before it ha- you know how much money's involved. But in your scenario, at that point, there should be an understanding among the collaborators. Mm-hmm. So three people in a room in Nashville is 33% each, 33.33 each. We don't know who gets the 33.34% mm-hmm. on that. It's usually one of my clients. But so making sure it's an, if it's an equal split, if not signing a piece of paper, because the law assumes an equal split unless the three collaborators agree otherwise. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, people like David Bowie always took 50%, even though there might have been three people in the room. So they they have their way of doing writing. And told them? Oh, yeah. You, they knew up front, and something had to be signed. And if they didn't sign a collaboration sheet or a, a song mm-hmm. sheet, then at least their next step would be registering it with your performing rights organization, which would be ASCAP, BMI, CSAC, or GMR. And these are organizations that have huge databases of registered songs, and they use those databases to create blanket licenses to collect money from public performance of the song, radio being the easiest example there. So those databases require registration, and so you register the song, and you can register it as a third each, or 50% for one party and the other two split the other, 25-25. That would be your step. You need to register the copyright with the Copyright Office down in Washington, D.C., which I think the price is somewhere at this point, 55 bucks for an online registration, which is going to be going up in the spring. All of the uh, fees for the um, Copyright Office are going up. So get your registrations in now. And you also can't sue for infringement. You know, if somebody's stealing your song or sampling your song or doing something uh, until you have that registration and you actually have to have it in your hand and it takes sometimes up to a year to get it. But there's expedited registration. Sorry, I got too much in my head. (laughs) So collaboration, PRO registration, performing rights organization registration, registering it with the copyright office. And this is assuming you don't have a music publishing deal because if you've got that big old single I can guarantee you the music publishers are going to be handing you a piece of paper and wanting to buy it, buy a piece of it, some of it, because right now the numbers are astronomical of what people are paying to buy hit songs if you're not signed to an exclusive writer agreement. Under your scenario, then you just create a publishing company name as part of your registration processes, the two registrations, one with the PRO and one with the Copyright Office, and then you're good to go, and then you start collecting your money you got to license it, though. So somebody has to administer the song. There's three parts to a copyright, copyrighted song. There's ownership, control, and money. Who owns it? Who can license it and collect? And who gets paid what from the earnings derived from the song? And so writing it and registering it and sitting in your house and doing nothing you're going to get very small amount of the money. You need somebody to go out there and find the uses and license them and collect that money that is rightfully due you. And the PROs do that? PROs do it for only public performance because songs earn money in different areas. You've got public performance like on radio. You've got print like on the old-fashioned sheet music or lyric reprints on karaoke. And then you've got your streamings, which is sort of reproduction, mechanical, and performance. 
and then you have your everyone's pressing vinyl nowadays so you you uh, get paid for the mechanical which is the mechanical reproduction of the song and then you have your your foreign monies as well so the pro is only going to collect one of those and you got to go out and license the other ones because if you don't license them people are going to use them and not pay you so Really, every artist putting things up on any of the platforms, whether it be CD Baby, DistroKid, The Orchard, you know, from the user-friendly DSP outlets to the ones where you have a deal with the distributor, you still have to have pretty much an office or a team of people doing that for you. There's a lot of artists, you know, who are making music, putting it up on SoundCloud immediately. Um, maybe putting it on CD Baby or DistroKid or, you know, whatever it is, TuneCore. Then all their music's going out and people are listening to it on Apple and Spotify or Amazon. And they're getting money through SoundExchange or is the money coming through CD Baby? And well, some of these aggregators, these DSPs, the aggregator like a TuneCore or a CD Baby, they will have administration in there with the publishing. So they will match up the copyright and the sound recording together with the copyright in the musical work, because there's two separate copyrights. Mm -hmm. And when they go out and place their repertoire or their inventory of of master recordings with these third-party DSPs, they will also bundle to the extent that they have the rights, the the publishing, Mm -hmm. and then some of them will pay it back to the record labels, and the record label will pay the songwriters and the publishers, or they will have a, a specific license directly with the songwriters and publishers, and they'll get paid. So in the world of streaming, you could be automatically licensed with the bundling of the master. The money that's made by the master doesn't go to the songwriter if they're not the same person. That's artist royalties, and that's what the recording artist gets. And the songwriter and the publishers get the royalties earned by the musical work or the song. Sound exchange comes in, and that involves the public performance of the master recording. Because the United States and just very few other countries around the world do not recognize the public performance of sound recordings. So when you hear a sound recording of your favorite artist on the radio, on regular radio, not Sirius Satellite, they're not making any money. The artist is not making any money from the broadcast of that master. But the songwriter is. For the song. Right, which is something that has driven people crazy for years. We haven't signed on to that treaty yet, and we will, but we've done something that's kind of an interim step, which is terrestrial radio, that won't happen, but satellite and digital type of public performance, we are going to pay the artist for the transmission or the digital broadcast of the master, just like the songwriter is going to get paid. They're not getting paid the same thing. But the digital public performance money for the artist is what is administered and collected by sound exchange. Mm -hmm. And that goes to the featured artist, the background artists, and the producer of the master recording. And does sound exchange collect that and distribute it to the featured artist, or does the record company need to do that? Record company collects the... R-O, or if you see that R-O, rights owner. Mm. The rights owner, they own the master recording. So they have a different piece of the sound exchange pie that goes to them. 
and Sound Exchange will pay directly to the featured artist. And the featured artist will send a letter of direction to Sound Exchange to say, pay my producer 25% or 30% of my money. And then Sound Exchange pays all of the other non featured artists directly. Right. And I know that when you put a single up on one of the platforms that go out to the DSPs, they now will ask about who's the featured musician, and you can put all the credits of all the musicians and recording engineers, and that's a way for them all to get paid. Yeah. Sound Exchange, just at the beginning of the year, did change their policies, though. Two new things they've got a new letter of direction, for instance, to pay artists to pay their producers, and they're going to withhold taxes unless you file a W 9 tax form with your filing. The artist files a W-9 and the producer files a W-9 with sound exchange, or you're only going to get a piece of your royalties. And then you have to go and try to do this whole IRS thing. So that just started new in January. But good Lord, I've got producers that work through companies and people that sell their sound exchange money and they want their money to go to a third party. And it is just like the old days when you tried to sell your songwriter share of public performance money and, and ASCAP and BMI made it really difficult to do do that. Rightfully so, because you shouldn't sell it. But there's more and more hoops to jump through where if I say pay this corporation, the sound exchange money for an artist or a producer, they say, who owns the corporation? Well, sometimes they give a piece of their sound exchange money to their investor. And they're like, well, if the artist or the producer doesn't actually own and the sole owner of that corporation, we're not going to redirect that money. So it, it's interesting where all of this money is going. And if anybody wants to pop on their sound exchange account, I suggest they do that. I found on behalf of, of one of the estates I represent, for instance, 187 overlapping and disputed claims, people claiming they were the featured artist on my client's sound recording. And I sent the sound exchange gives you the opportunity to maintain your claim to it because someone else is disputing it or overlapping, conflicting. Edit yours saying, oh, yeah, actually, there were two artists on that. So I only get 50 percent. I'm sorry, I claimed 100 percent or um, relinquish your claim because you did it by mistake and you weren't actually entitled to that sound exchange money. Well, I hit maintain 187 times one at a time, because there's no select all button, or at least I couldn't find it. And, um, and 184 of them within an hour apologized. Amazing. And said, I'm sorry, we've been collecting your client's money for God knows how long. My client died and he was 103 or something. And they just relinquished it. And I'm thinking, I don't know how much money I didn't get. And am I going to go after 184 people? And, and they're all record labels and people. And they, it was just, oops, we sorry we made a mistake. So pop on there. It's pretty interesting. Amazing. Sorry, getting off top. <laughs> <laughs> First of all, if you have any inclination to do anything other than make music, you might want to pursue it. Because this is... An, no, don't uh, become a lawyer. <laughs> it's a lot of labor to just do what you do. It's a lot of output. And then there's a lot of people trying to screw you all the time that you've got to pay attention to and follow up on. And most artists I know, like they barely text you back because everybody is working kind of 24-7. That's why we have what I want to call our team members or our, should be called trusted advisors. And I think we should all be licensed. Agents have to be licensed. Lawyers have to be licensed. Accountants have to be licensed. Personal managers don't need to be licensed. Your brother-in-law doesn't need to be licensed who's taking care of your business. 
Again, it's a small business. You're making money. You have expenses and you have revenue and that's it. And your asset is your time and your services and your creative output. So if we can find the right trusted advisors to surround ourselves with and allow them to go out and take care of this. Yes. And we've got, I think, new generations of lawyers coming out. We've got new generations of personal managers. And I've got great hope for the new trusted advisors that are coming out into our community right now. And I I really believe that their motivations are a lot more pure than than previous generations of power and prestige and being in the Billboard Hot 100. I really do. And why do you think there's been a change in that way? What do you think has brought that on? Well, just look at what the lawyers look like now coming out of law school. They're not going to wear a suit and a tie. It's more of a mindset. And I think that more creative people are going into the trusted advisor role Mm -hmm. than business people. Right. And so I've real excited about it. It does seem that there used to be this discrepancy. There were the suits and the people who looked like hippies who were making music. And they were just in two separate worlds, you know, where people putting out music independently know a lot more about how to take care of themselves than they used to. And, you know, it's all out there online for us to find things. We've got a shared power now. Mm-hmm. It used to be all one-sided. It was indentured servitude when you signed to a publishing company and you signed to a record label. They told you what to write, when to write, where to write, and what you were getting paid or not paid. Mm-hmm. And same thing with recording artists. Freedom has freedom of expression and freedom, and, and the power shift has really played into this level playing field where we all have to play together in the sandbox together nicely. And it's really creating more balance there. But that struggle between suits and non-suits or hippies is still there. My law firm wants me to come to work every day dressed like a lawyer, and my clients are real happy when I'm in a pair of jeans and sneakers. What do you do? Well, they're your clients. Yeah. There's that. My dress code policy is for my staff is you can't look worse than me. So there's termination and there's all these streams and go on to sound exchange. And uh, well, there was something that I learned fairly recently, which is that the PROs, I always thought they collected for each individual person. But what I realized is that they'll get huge sums of money and then they need to decide among their people how much is going to go to this writer and that writer. And I've always wondered how they decide that. You know, they have this pie that they have to distribute every year. Let's say they have a deal with Spotify, and Spotify says all the BMI writers all have collected this much money, and they write a check to BMI, and then it's up to BMI to distribute that money among their writers. How do they calculate? I mean, I was told, oh, it's an algorithm. Everything is an algorithm. But what does that mean? How do you know that you're one? I'm an ASCAP writer, but there are BMI writers. And everybody should get along because we're all working together to make things better for all of us. How do you know that you're getting the share of that big payment that you're supposed to get? You don't. You have, I'm not sure what's a better kept secret, the formula to Coca-Cola or the algorithm to how the PROs weigh and pay their performing rights monies. Payments are supposed to reflect the weight of your works. 
and the quality and quantity of your works. So in working, in my case, with the George Gershwin estate and the Elvis Presley estate early in my career, my songwriters were weighed very differently than a pop songwriter or a brand new songwriter. And so there is no answer to that. And if you even ask the PROs, I don't think that they know. I'll get whacked if I talk about too much of that other stuff, so I won't. Don't say that. (laughs) (laughs) And whacked not in the mafia sense. I thought that's what you were saying. We're talking like uh, probably just blacklisted or something, blackballed. But bottom line is there is an algorithm and you can't match up every single stream with a particular song. You should be able to do that. You know when you sell a download back in the days of downloads and you know when you sell a vinyl record what song you're selling and the money's being paid specific to a particular work. When you do a blanket license, when you do a license with ASCAP, BMI, CSAC, and GMR, you're licensing all their millions of songs, except GMR only has thousands. And even though you may only use 1% of it, you still have access to all of them. And there are reporting requirements. These DSPs and even live performance, you submit your, what's the sheet called when you go and your your set list, for instance. Yeah. So that the venues know what songs were played in the venues. So the PROs are trying to track and identify use money payment to the right person as opposed to just a big pool to be split up. But the pool to be split up is found in a lot of different businesses here. Record labels have it, publishers have it, PROs have it, and it's basically black box money, which means it's unallocated to a specific song or a specific recording. And there's a lot of money in that black box. A crap load of money. Am I allowed to say that? <laughs> <laughs> you, you can say all of it. This is not a, a rated guess. There is a lot of that money. Yeah. And people would always laugh when I would negotiate a black box share of money for a songwriter that's never written a song. Because black box money goes to the people that are like the Gershwins and the Presleys and of the world because they have such a huge repertoire that is such a large portion of the overall earnings of an organization that you can say, oh, you represent 6.2% of everything, so we have this allocated fund and we're going to give you 6.2% of this unallocated money. But a brand new songwriter, you know, they, they, it's, it's, it's like negotiating maternity leave for a 12-year-old in, a, in an employment situation. Why, why do it? Why are you doing that? And by and large, if they pop, they got to share that money. So I like, I like people laughing at me when I negotiate. I think one of my favorite lines is, no one has ever commented on that particular paragraph. And I'm like, score. <laughs> I've actually had people say that to me too. So I feel like I'm in the club. Yeah. I read the indemnity clauses. I'm a nerd. A lot of people are probably going to call you up after hearing this. So probably good for business. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So, okay. Let's talk about unclaimed money for a minute. Like there is unclaimed money, which is different than the black box. There's Well, no, I shouldn't say that. Black box is collect money that's unallocated to a specific work. Mm -hmm. Unclaimed money I call gray box. Okay. And I call that gray box because no contracts in there. So that's money that somebody's holding. So let me tell you a a story that kind of puts unclaimed money together with termination work. Okay. 
So I'm pulling copyrights and blowing off the dust of these old contracts. And I'm going, okay, 56 years ago or 46 years ago, whatever it is, 35, 25 years ago, you signed something and you gave away your copyrighted work. So we're going to go and we're going to send a notification to the owner and we're going to say, we're going to get this back and we're going to own it in the United States sometime in the future. It's a future interest. Well, we're shaking bushes So I send a termination notice to a music publisher of a very well-known songwriter with a very well-known song, but their entire catalog is at publishing company A. But they had one song at publishing company B. So I send this notification to publishing company B. Now, Now, everybody knows that this guy's in Nashville. Nashville Music Row wasn't that big back then. And the notice starts rattling stuff within the organization, and they start looking at it. This one song. And the president of the the publishing company calls me up because you're not going to believe this. And I said, what's that? He said, 20 years ago, we did a sync license. We put this song in a movie. And we've been holding $25,000 for 20 years because we couldn't find your client, who's probably been in the office a thousand times over the last... 20 years. I know exactly who he is and where he is, but apparently it was never raised in the system. And the system was just holding it because they didn't know where where this guy was from New York. He didn't know where he was in Nashville. So we're writing you a check for $25,000 just because we've been holding it for 20 years. And of course, the next day, the co-writer called me and asked me if he gets $25,000, but he was paid his $25,000. Oh, he was? Yeah, 20 years ago. So that's unclaimed money. That's money that was collected. Now you have this ACH direct deposit. One of my client's wife died, and SoundExchange just stopped paying him. And you're like, why? If he's, he's the, the artist, why did you stop paying him? And they go, we don't know. It just stopped. And you have the direct deposit and the ACH if you, if you switch one number. When my clients die, everybody just stops paying, and that's all unclaimed money. you got to go in and look for it. I was taught, for instance, that relationships, contracts, and deals should be in perpetual renegotiation. Everybody changes. We're not in the same position we are today that we're going to be in in a year from now. The manager, the record label, the publisher, the artist, the songwriter, the agent, everybody's changing. So we can't leave that stagnant. So you have to pay attention. Same thing with money. There is a system going on of licensing and collecting your money and not all of it gets to you. And it needs to do that. I once asked a question about a dash two on a royalty accounting statement. I don't can't even read these darn things. They're 4,000 pages long. But I said, well, a dash two, I thought that meant like back in the days that meant it was a tape cassette or a CD or something. But it was just different from all of these other ones while I was preparing these song lists to create termination notices. It's like such a cleanup thing. I love doing them detail-oriented again. And I, and I called up the publishing company and I said, what does dash two mean? And they go, we don't know. And the dash was supposed to be a zero. I got a check for the client for $60,000 because it was a dash two instead of a zero two. It was just a data input entry. It was a mistake. Unclaimed money. But this process of reclaiming your copyrights is taking a fresh look at your catalog, your third-party owners, whether it's a record label or a music publishing company. They're pulling your stuff out from the dungeons because even though you're making money, 
when I was running Polygram Music, for instance, Smoke It's In Your Eyes was the biggest song, but no one was paying attention to that because it was just, it was the Ever Ready Bunny, right? It was just going, keeps on going, just keeps on going. It wasn't making any noise. It was just making money. Well, when we start doing this termination work, we're dusting this stuff off. We're shaking the bushes. We're pulling the stuff out of the dungeon. We're finding money. We're reclaiming ownership of the copyright. We're cleaning up relationships. I'm finding owners down in Texas that the, the songwriter didn't even know that's where their copyright ended up. I found that Elvis owned a piece of one of my songwriter's copyrights that he didn't even know Elvis got a piece of it. And he couldn't figure out why he was, he was you know, it was like 16 point something percent. And it was like, well, you know, forever Elvis's people were getting it. And it's such a beautiful thing to do this termination work. I feel like I'm spit shining the, you know, the old car as one of my friends analogizes who may be listening. And I won't say your name to give you credit for that analogy. Well, that's no, that it's so beautiful. This is just amazing and food for thought. And I really thank you for coming. And, you know, listening to this for the first time, it, it, it is a little bit of a shock because I think so many songwriters, I mean, I have activist friends and there's Sona and there's NSAI. And there are activist songwriting groups that are really working to change things. What's different about this conversation is you're talking about things that are already in existence in the law, that are the law now, where people are not knowing what the rights are, knowing where the money's gone, knowing how to find the money, knowing that they even aren't getting money that's there for them. The whole thing is unearthing this buried treasure. I'm sure record companies won't like that people are getting educated in this podcast. And if you're my friends, I love you and I'm sorry. <laughs> songwriters have to know. So yeah, songwriters need to know this and they don't learn it. Again, songwriters and artists are small businesses. My clients typically feel guilty or hesitant to even audit their record labels or their publishers, even though they have in the contract, you have the right to do that. And they feel like, oh, I don't know if I should rock the boat. I don't know what's going to happen. Maybe I shouldn't, you know, I should just be quiet and just be happy that I'm getting what I'm getting. Again, I represent a lot of the legacy artists and songwriters, and there's a different temperament. Mm -hmm. But the same thing with terminations, be going beyond shock, they're like, I have some that say, I just don't want to do it. They've been a very good partner. The publisher's been a very good partner. And I said, well, very good. Recapture your copyright, terminate the grant, and sell it right back to them and get a couple hundred thousand dollars, and in some cases, many, many millions of dollars, and give it right back to them. There are, let me just say, there are in our community, small community, a number of music publishing companies and executives who have encouraged their songwriters to educate themselves and to do this. And as a pay-it-forward kind of reward, the songwriters end up coming to me, and they end up selling the asset that they recaptured right back to the person who was a mensch and giving them that information and getting some money, which is going to be an annuity. Songwriters don't have 401ks. Retirement plan. Mm -hmm. Nobody's putting a pension away other than the union. So you do have some money at the union, but by and large, songwriters don't have 401ks. Or health care. And health care. So a lot of these publishers are doing what I consider to be the right thing as like just normal human beings. 
and they're encouraging their songwriters to exercise these rights that the law gives them and then to get a chunk of money that they could put away and live out their lives. Very different because you have to remember you're getting pennies and dollars as songwriters. I've gotten checks for songwriters who I know have made tens of millions of dollars over, again, 50 to 60 years, but it has come in in drips and drabs. And to get them a one check for six hundred dollars or $750,000, they've never seen one check that big because they wrote in the 60s, in the 70s, in the 50s, and they didn't get that kind of money back then. And my mind is blown that they're impressed with a check for a couple hundred thousand dollars. And this is what they're getting and and some of these music publishers are encouraging them to get. And I I personally appreciate that. That's beautiful. Well, I could go on talking to you for ages. We did. We talked for two hours when we had lunch. (laughs) You're looking at your one. (laughs) Better edit this. Yeah, this is so wonderful and what a service it is to songwriters listening to hear this and know that all of this is possible. And it's beautiful what you're doing. And I thank you for coming to Well, thank you for having me. And for those songwriters out there that have written a song between 1961 and 1974, run to your lawyer. And those people who have written songs in 1981, 82, and 83, run to your lawyer because there comes a time that this forever is forever and you're going to lose the right to terminate and recapture. And every day that goes by, somebody's losing that right if they don't exercise it. And that would be an absolute travesty. Listen up. Thank you, Linda. Thank you, Louise. All right. You've been listening to Linda Edel Howard, episode one for season two of Song Chronicles. I want to thank my guest for a truly enlightening conversation about the ins and outs of song copyrights and royalties. Join me next week for a conversation with Robin Daynar, a highly respected figure in the music world. Robin has worked for many years as a producer, engineer, and sound mixer, both in the studio and at live shows. He'll share colorful stories from his early days at CBGB's to his present-day job as production manager at LA's acclaimed Terragram Ballroom. On Song Chronicles, you'll hear the -the behind-the-scenes stories told by music makers and music industry insiders themselves. Please check out the dozen episodes from our season one, which includes interviews with Gloria Estefan, Al Schmidt, J.D. Souther, Desmond Child, among other great interviews. If you are enjoying the podcast, like us and leave a review on Apple, YouTube, Spotify, Podbean, or wherever you stream. We appreciate your feedback. I'm your host and producer, Louise Goffin.